think that's where really people geek out a little bit too much there and say, oh, well, the Supreme will burn the barrel a lot faster than the, you know, 6XE, than the Dasher, than the, you know, whatever cartridge. Uh, to me, in that point, it, it really is it's kind of irrelevant. Hey there, Marksman Tribe. You're listening to today's guest, Mike Keenan, who is a professional PRS shooter. And that is the topic of today's interview is getting started in the Precision Rifle series. Now, welcome to the show. This is the Everyday Marksman, the podcast where we talk about tactical skills for living a more adventurous life. Our website is everydaymarksman.co. And there you're going to find all of our social links, our articles, our episodes, and links to our awesome community of marksmen just like you. I am your ever-faithful host, Matt Robertson, former military officer turned tech sector corporate grunt, shooting enthusiast, outdoors nerd, and your friend. All right. Now, I am excited for this interview because if you might not know this, but I have been very interested in getting started with precision rifle shooting for a long time. Now, I've dabbled in it here or there, doing some local matches, even started building out a gun, which is still in the shop at the moment, getting some other work done. But I've never stepped up to doing organized matches like you find with the PRS or the National Rifle League, that's NRL. I've never really dove into that area. And I think part of my hesitation for that was because I didn't know what I didn't know. I also was just afraid I wasn't going to have the right kind of equipment. And to be honest, I think that's why a lot of people don't start. We know that we should go compete. We know where we can go compete, but we don't want to show up and look like fools. So there's a lot of really great information in this interview that dispels a lot of those myths, such as looking like a fool at your first time or showing up without the right kind of gear. But Mike does give some great advice for getting started, as well as the two most important things you can do for yourself at your first match. All right, enough out of me. Let's get to the interview. And as always, if you are pressed for time, you can jump to the last five, 10 minutes or so and get my key takeaways from this interview with Mike. All right, let's do it. All right, Mike, welcome to the Everyday Marksman. Well, thanks for having me. So um, I know I've got a bunch of your background here, so prior naval aviation, um, but I want to start right at the beginning of your competitive shooting career. How long ago was that? Okay. That was back in 19, about 94, 95, actually. I went to the U.S. Naval Academy and I shot for what we called the combat pistol team, which was... Uh, basically uspsa back then um we, being a, a collegiate sport they obviously had a lot of the uh, olympic style air rifle 22s and whatnot uh was not involved with that but i actually started shooting competitively back in college okay so i want to i want to know the story of your very first match take me back <laughs> uh boy it's hard to remember to be honest with you i know um I was happy to have my my first pistol was a actually I still have it 1911 Springfield uh, 45 which is what we pretty much all shot back then in USPSA. Uh, I don't really remember too too much about the specifics of the match. 
I do remember them. The first one I did shoot had a, a small tire shoot house that we had to go through. And that was quite daunting for me, never having shot anything but uh, kind of a flat range type setup in practice. Uh, so having to kind of wander through the house, if you will, uh, was quite a challenge and quite an eye opener um, for me at that damn time. Do you remember how you felt that day? Uh, I was excited. Uh, you know, we were all finally getting to go out and shoot a match and, uh, you know, rather than just practice at school and whatnot. So I uh, hadn't really done a lot of that growing up at all. So it was really, really exciting to go out and, and, and be a part of something bigger than just the team and, and the guys I'd been shooting with at the academy. So you mentioned you didn't do a whole lot of that growing up. So um, did you have a lot of firearms experience prior to that? Not really, to be honest with you. Um, we did not own firearms in my house. Um, so I kind of shot with one of my best friends at the time. His dad was an outdoorsman, you know, avid hunter and um, fisherman and whatnot. And, and we started doing a lot of archery and shooting. He would take us uh, to a gun club, uh, sportsman's club, really, that actually I became a junior member of. Uh, where we learned to shoot rifles. I mean, I shot some rifles, 22s at the Boy Scouts and whatnot, but that's kind of where I really shot some pistol and, um, you know, trap and skeet, I guess. I'm not sure which one I was shooting at the time. And it was a shotgun shooting clays. <laughs> you know, being a kid, that's about all I remember. Uh, and then and then shooting archery and whatnot, uh, kind of getting it all into those fundamentals of that kind of, you know, sending something downrange into a target. So back to your first match then. How did that go? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it went too well. I, I'll, I'll really be honest with you. I don't remember a lot from that match in particular uh, about how I finished or, I mean, certainly didn't, <laughs> didn't set any records on fire by any, any stretch of the imagination. I know I didn't shoot myself or anybody else. So that was probably a win. <laughs> <laughs> didn't get DQ. Didn't kill anybody. Call it, yeah, call it good. Exactly. <laughs> didn't, yeah, yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. I, I be honest with you, even at the time, because of the way we, we called it, we just kind of went and, didn't even realize until later that we were actually like that I was really shooting a USPSA sanctioned match, if that makes any sense, because of the way the team was set up. It wasn't um, it wasn't like it's probably not as active. You know, USPSA back then, I don't think was quite as big as it is right now. And it is involved with a lot of the stuff. I know we have a lot of collegiate teams that shoot uh, different matches, you know, um, and different different types of shooting sports between three gun and, you know, pistol matches and, and even PRS matches. So I'm curious about the evolution then from that first USPSA pistol match with a Springfield 1911, which I own one as well, Springfield. Um, yep. Though I don't think I ever shoot it anymore. I, I should fix that. Um, but I want to I want to go the evolution from yeah. I, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I'm a I'm a I'm a gun hipster now, so I got a CZ. That's been my go to. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, there you go. So. I want to know your evolution from that USPSA match with a, with a 1911 to PRS. Yeah. So I, I shot some. And then of course, once I got out of uh, school, one ammo started becoming a lot more expensive. So here I was going from shooting all kinds of free government ammo, which was great to now I'm a poor uh, right out of college ensign, not having a lot of money. And, and frankly, uh, needing to concentrate more on going through flight school, uh, a lot more important than uh, I think going and shooting matches all the time. So I'd taken a little bit of a break. I shot here and there, but it didn't really do too, too much right out of school. Uh, several years later, once I kind of got a little bit further on in my career, I got back into pistol shooting again with that same 1911. 
uh, and then brought, you know, went past that and up getting some Glocks. And actually now I have a Kai custom, uh, 2011 that I shoot for, uh, limited. So I, I actually got back into shooting USPSA and then, um, a lot of three gun stuff as well, two gun and three gun, uh, over the last, hmm, I don't know, seven or eight years, maybe a little longer ago than that. And then from there, kind of progressed on a PRS. I've always kind of liked the long range shooting, just something intrigued me about hitting targets at really long range. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure being a hunter and whatnot, you know, my original original concept of really long range is probably like a lot of guys, three to 500 yards and like a thousand was nothing that I would do consistently and do well. Uh, and eventually I just figured I'd buy a rifle and find ranges that I could shoot and so how long have you been doing the PRSP since then? It's only been about three years. This was, my, I think, my third full season shooting. Uh, I had like one season where I shot a couple of two matches four seasons ago and then really started hitting heavy about uh, two and a half years ago. Okay. Now, this probably is a politics question, but um, for those who don't know, and I actually, I'm fuzzy on this, what is there a distinction between PRS and NRL or is it just kind of two flavors? <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's basically the two sh- sanctioning bodies of long range shoot, competitive long range shooting, at least where it's gone. Um, the PRS precision rifle series, and then the national rifle league are owned by two different people, uh, Travis, and then, uh, um, Shannon K owns the PRS and very, very similar. They've, uh, I don't know how to say they differentiated between the two. Really, the PRS is is starting to become a little more nationwide. It was split up a little more where the NRL was mostly West Coast and the and the PRS was most, mostly East Coast. But really, they're um, the PRS is really starting to take over. Not take over. That's not the right word. Spread a little bit further into the West Coast and have a lot more uh, national matches all over the country. And the NRL is still a little bit more concentrated in the West than they are in the East Coast. So I probably should ask this earlier. You mentioned you have a Kai custom pistol. Well, what can, mm-hmm. what, what's your rifle? My rifle right now, I'm running a impact action with a custom um, benchmark barrel in six dasher on an MPA chassis. Okay. Um, what's chassis? You'd say MPA or is that? M- yeah. M- Masterpiece arms. Okay. Masterpiece arms. Okay. Their new matrix chassis. Yeah. Phil's a great guy. Um, so you said your rifle right now. So how often as a professional shooter, do you actually switch rifles? Yeah, it's more, not that it's so much switching rifles. I mean, I mean, it depends on what you really consider the rifle, to be honest with you. Like, for example, I think I shot and, and I didn't shoot as much as a lot. Some guys do. I think I shot through probably five plus barrels last year. You know, if you consider a new chamber, a new rifle, then guys are shooting new rifles every couple of months. Uh, you know, if you're shooting a lot, you might, you might burn out a barrel in a month. I know a couple of guys that have done that shooting matches and training every weekend. Uh, they, they end up shooting quite a bit. Mm-hmm. If you're considering actions and chassis, a lot of that stuff kind of gets swapped around. Like take the same barrel action, drop it into a different chassis or different stock. If something, you know, hits my fancy or something new came out, like the end of last year, the new MPA matrix chassis came out and I was fortunate enough to get one of the first ones two matches before the finale. And so I was able to shoot it in the finale. So that was kind of a new rifle. Like if you were to look at the rifle, it would certainly look different because the chassis or stock certainly brings out kind of what the rifle is, but, but frankly, everything else in the part of the rifle, the, the stuff that actually shoots and kind of, well, the bullet goes down in the barrel is all the same thing. Mm-hmm. So something you mentioned there, I, I wanted to 
call back attention to is he said you shot through five barrels last year. Now, I, I, I might be wrong. A six dasher is kind of known for being a relative barrel burner, right? No, actually, the dasher and the six millimeter is probably one of the easier ones. Some of the creed mores tend to burn out the barrels a little faster. It has to do with speed. Mm-hmm. Dasher for me was something I started shooting about the end of last season. So I, as you know, I should mention before, I'm a I shoot for Alpha Munitions Brass Company, and they came out with their dasher at the end of well, we've been testing it for quite a while, but uh, they finally had enough and, and, and announced that the in the fall of last year. So that's about when I started shooting it at matches. Uh, it had been shot at matches since about last spring. But before that, I was shooting a caliber called 6XC. So I, I want to kind of ask the question on, so five barrels, but how many rounds was that? Each barrel is probably somewhere around twelve to 1,300 rounds. I think I shot seven or 8,000 rounds last year. Of just precision rifle ammo, yeah. Yeah, well, then you have dry fires, right? And then everything else goes into it. And, and the reason I ask that question is, you know, one of the points I try to make to people is, is a lot of people, I think, emphasize too much on picking just the right caliber or picking just the right this or that when they're not going to shoot more than like 500 rounds in a year. And the real difference happens when you are burning five barrels and, and 6,000 rounds in a year. Yeah, I think people actually make too much on the whether it's a barrel burner or not, to be honest with you. Um, in, in the scheme of things, when you're shooting, especially if you're going to go and shoot competition, barrels are very inexpensive. Um, there's not much else on the gun. You figure a barrel blank somewhere in the 320 to $350 you know, retail range, a few hundred dollars to have it chambered up. In, in the scheme of things, it sounds like a lot of money, but it really isn't a lot of money. When you figure uh, the average cost of a two-day PRS match is going to be somewhere around seven to $1,000 to go to for the weekend. When you factor in travel time, the, the cost of a hotel, uh, gas, food, uh, bullets, um, entry fee, all of those things. So when you start spreading that out, getting a couple hundred rounds more out of a barrel or less out of a barrel is really kind of irrelevant. I think that's where really people geek out a little bit too much there and say, oh, well, the 6 more will burn the barrel out faster than the you know, 6XE, than the Dasher, than the you know, whatever cartridge. Uh, to me, in that point, it, it really is is kind of irrelevant. You know, And again, and, and then if you're not shooting that much, it doesn't really matter on the on the other end, like kind of like what you're saying. If you're only shooting 500 rounds a year, getting an extra 100 or 200 rounds out of your barrel isn't really a big deal either. Mm-hmm. You know, over all this career you've done between the the pistol shooting and two gun and three gun shotgun clays and now PRS, um, if you could narrow it down, what are the top five lessons you've learned from shooting competitively? Teamwork in some regard. Um, Teamwork. One of the things I really like about PRS is that we all kind of work together. Nobody, everybody wants to win, but they want to win because they beat you, not because you beat yourself or you had a problem. Everybody's very willing to help you out um, when that goes on. So it's kind of that that teamwork. As far as I don't know, I, I kind of call it like we're all one team. I feel like we're all one big family out there when we're shooting, even though we're com- competing against each other. Um, discipline uh, certainly for keeping your head in the game, you know, I mean, just with the PRS stuff, just loading, you know, getting, getting there, uh, time management. I'm having a hard time coming up with a couple (laughs) other ones for you there. (laughs) Sorry about that. Those are my top three anyway. (laughs) So, so we had, uh, 
so the top three then you have uh, teamwork, discipline, and then what was the yeah? Third I, I, I said it's not really probably teamwork. It's just if I say sportsmanship, that's sportsmanship. probably a better okay. way to describe yeah. it rather than teamwork. More than the sportsmanship of it, and that's and that's honestly what brought me more to PRS more than anything. Out of all the disciplines I've shot, not that I haven't experienced that in other ones, but but. The, the the sportsmanship in PRS is unbelievable compared to any of the other shooting sports I've ever shot in. So for someone who's brand new and shows up, how is that sportsmanship piece going to look to them? Like if they don't have all the gear, is that going to be a problem? That's exactly that's exactly what it's going to look like. And that's, that's exactly why it is. You could show up there. Probably there's actually some places if you somehow had a problem with your rifle, they uh, people have donated rifle, ammo, optics, all kinds of stuff that if your rifle went down and you had a problem where there's rifles for you there to shoot. So you almost, I mean, obviously you just can't show up with nothing, right? I mean, <laughs> we're not there to put you through it, but, but I mean, if you have a problem, if you have gear that's not working right or whatever, they'll get you through. There isn't a piece of gear that I own that another competitor couldn't use. And not, not only, a. a a new competitor to try something out before they purchased it or not know, or didn't realize it was there, but frankly, my competition. So if there's, if I'm happen to be shooting well and I'm going for the win and the guy who's tied with me or, or heading right there is like, Hey Mike, can I use this, you know, on this stage? Absolutely. The answer is yes. And I have never, ever had a problem on the flip side of that of like, Ooh, you know, I need another bag because the stage requires this. Can I borrow your bag? I, I've never had anybody say, nah, I really, I, I'm not really comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned bags. I'm going to have to dig into that one a little bit. Cause I, I feel like watching from the side, um, so I have not done a PRS match. I'm, I'm trying to gear myself into doing it. I'm learning as much as I can. So I'm considering you free consulting. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Anytime. Um, part of the sportsmanship. <laughs> yeah. So I, I see these like different styles of bags versus tripods. Like I, I feel like before I started looking into this, my idea of this was, oh, show up with a, with a nice bipod and then go for it. And I feel like that's not actually how things happen anymore. So let's talk about some of that ancillary equipment before I, I know gear gear conversations are what they are, but um, yeah, I think the biggest piece of gear, if you buy, have to buy one piece of gear, um, it would be a wax canvas game changer from Armageddon gear. Mm -hmm. I could shoot just about every single stage with that piece of gear and be successful. Now there is some stuff when every once in a while you get in one or two stages that are a little weirdly designed or whatever, that another little piece of gear happens to help out a little bit. But um, that's what I use for a rear bag. It's pretty much the only bag I use. I do have a little sandbag that um, Tom made for me that works really well because I'm, I'm about five eight, so sometimes getting on the PR skill stage, I need a, just a little bit, a little bit thinner than what the what the um, game changer is. But most of the guys out there are running a game changer for 80, 80 90 percent of the match. So, uh, and there's some variations on that. Like WeBad makes a bag that's out there. Some other companies make some bags that they're that obviously they can't copy because it is patented. I think, um, but but do a similar thing. So if somebody else, you know, shoots for another company or, or does something like that, or happens to, you know, really like that one there, there's, there's bags that do similar work, but usually we all have a bag that is very similar to the game changer, if not the game changer. Uh, and that will get you through most of the stuff, either shooting with it on its side, you know, kind of upside down, you know, you use all sides of it. There's not one way to shoot it. And then we also use it for a rear bag too. Mm -hmm. So, can you describe the game changer? Like what does it actually look like? So people can kind of get a sense of why it matters so much. It looks like a, I'm trying to think of, it kind of looks like a, 
an N, if you will, like a big flat N or upside down V or however you want to look at it. So think of a big square bag where the bottom of it has a V cut in it. And what that V does now, now the flat does have a little bit of a, a bump in it too, but, but kind of when you get it the fill in the right way, it's kind of squishy and moves around a little bit. But what that V does um, is when you go up to anything that's kind of thin, like a, like a two by four that's on edge or a, or a gate or something like that, is it kind of the, the weight of the bag clamps over it and helps you give this kind of more flat surface. And that's what, cha- that's what the game changing part of it is rather than just a square bag filled with sand or anything else that we used to use and just kind of throw it on something that's big and flat. Now the, the bag works perfectly well for those types of situations. So if you're on a big rock or you're on a table or something like that, where you're not using a, a bipod, you can put that down and then lay it on there. Um, one of the keys to that bag, though, actually, is is taking a little bit of the fill out and getting and getting it a little more squishy, so that the the kind of bag wraps around the gun and gives you a little bit more uh, purchase and a little bit better uh, recoil control. Okay, cool. Um, I'll definitely be leaving a link to that in our show notes on this episode. Um, so I, I want to come back to the lessons learned. So you mentioned sportsmanship and discipline. I might have missed the third one. Uh, time management. Oh, okay. So that, yeah, put that under discipline. So time management, it's its own. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think there's a discipline kind of, I guess I looked at it as discipline throughout the whole thing. And that's another thing I really liked about, um, PRS over some of the other sports. I felt as much as dry firing and doing some of that stuff with a pistol or a rifle, uh, at the house kind of you know, I know a lot of guys do that and you have to do that, but for some reason you still, I don't feel that connected with it. I know that sounds silly, but I don't feel that connected with it. Um, just because the, you know, the recoil difference, I mean, you can get the, you know, a pistol pointed at, you know, the light switch or the plug or whatever you're going to do there. But, but a lot of it has to do when you're shooting the pistol about managing that recoil to get that follow on shot quickly. Right. Um, and in PRS, you can dry fire and do that stuff. And really, it's about when that rifle goes click, you know, when you're dry firing, is everything lined up the way they are? And the way these rifles, I mean, these rifles are so accurate and pretty much everybody from the top to the bottom is showing up with unbelievably good rifles and, and, and super accurate that when you're dry firing at the house, it's almost identical to how it's going to work in the real world. If, if you're pulling the trigger where you need to pull the trigger, you're going to make an impact. Now, where that trigger is getting pulled, the biggest question there is going to be a wind call. But elevation-wise, most of the time, it's not too bad. And then are you steady on the barricade? You know, Are you pulling that trigger where you need to do? And the other thing I like staying with the, the discipline side of it is having the discipline to get your ammunition squared away. I mean, it's a lot of, a lot, a lot of reloading and, and time and whatnot to do that, to, to make sure you have ammunition and, and, you know, the guns clean and everything set up for it. Time discipline comes to the time discipline in the particular stage itself. Can you focus on the stage with everything going on and see all the little things that are happening in, in, in do it in the given time frame? Most of these stages would not be that challenging if I gave you 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, unlimited amount of time where they become challenging is seeing all of the things that you need to see, all the subtle wind changes, all the subtle, you know, did you see where that puff of smoke was on a impact to know to make an adjustment a little bit left or a little bit right as you're kind of 
bringing the gun back in a recoil, you know, uh, chambering another round, moving to another position, setting up, you know, can you, can you do all that in the time required? And that's kind of the time discipline of the focus required to shoot well at PRS. Okay. That was a really good answer. So I want to kind of talk about getting ready as a newbie, you know? Um, so it, for someone who's never shot a match before, um, what's the first thing you would want them to know? Well, what I want them to know, and this is the biggest mistake that I see new shooters showing up with, is that they do not have two things done to their rifle. Um, you, I cannot help you. Nobody can help you out there if you do not have a good zero and you do not have good data for your rifle. So you need to spend a, a good amount of time ensuring that, you know, um, you know, within a half inch isn't good enough, you know, for a zero, it's got to be like dead zero, you know, within a 10th of a mil. Most, so it's kind of funny. Everybody talks about mills, little, little sidebar here, mills and MOA. Um, either one is fine, right? It's angular measurement. It, it, it's, it's like saying, well, which, which measurement is more accurate, you know, inches or millimeters. It, it's kind of irrelevant, right? And when we go down to decimal places, it's all the same thing. Uh, in PRS, the, language of choice is mills so most if i start talking about stuff like that that's kind of why most of us think in mills like a tenth or a, uh, you know two tenths right or two, you know two tenths up or whatever it's going to be is all talking about uh, mills so if you're not really within about a tenth of a mill of your point of impact point of aim you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure at distance especially with wind calls and whatnot and and then Again, new sh newer shooters are showing up with, and I've seen it, like, well, the side of the box in the six Creedmoor says that the bullet's going, you know, 27, 25, and the BC on the bullet is this. And I put that into my, you know, free phone app, which are great, uh, and I'm not making hits. And I'm not really sure where my zero is. It's good be a half inch low <laughs> sorry buddy i i can't help you <laughs> i don't know where your bullet's going at 842 yards and 12 mile an hour wind I, I i can't help you uh so so if i could tell anybody out there that's this listening is you know we can help on the fundamentals i can i can help you get the rifle balanced the right way on a one-day match you know i can i can say hey how about this how about try this but if if your data is not good going to make impacts you know you can have the perfect form but you just you know the bullet's not going where you want it to go because nothing's dialed in right so when we talk about collecting data i mean from the way you mentioned yeah the box says the velocity so I, i'm assuming yeah we need to, we need to have actual chrono numbers you do and, and and again those are the biggest things too that all that stuff is just a place to start mm -hmm. uh so so you look at what would be considered good data for bullets. So yeah, let's say you got a burger bullet and you're looking up like, you know, the, the Bible, Litz's, you know, custom curve or Litz's, uh, you know, trued out BC. Well, that BC is only good for the twist rate, the velocity, all of that stuff, the atmospherics, because that'll, you know, velocity decay and all that kind of stuff for when that bullet was tested. Uh, your bullet and your rifle is going to not be the same thing. It's going to be close, but it's not going to be exact. So what what I'll, like what I do when I set up new ammunition or you know new rifle or, or testing it out is yes I collect all that that data I have a lab radar and a magneto speed you know for different situations and I will shoot over those things I will get my average velocity over a number of rounds I will start out with a BC that I think is close and then I will start shooting at range I'll usually I start around I might make a shot or two at like 400 yards and I go out and I make a horizontal 
horizontal line on all my targets because I'm not worried about left and right. I'm only worried about up and down and elevation. And I will go out and I will true my ballistics calculator. So I run a Kestrel with um, applied ballistics on it. So at 400 yards, my Kestrel says, okay, you need 1.6 mils. I dial at 1.6 mils in my scope, boom, center punch. 500 yards, you know, 2.5 mils. You know, center punch, go to 600 yards. Okay, it's a little high. So I, then I start making corrections. I either start pulling speed or velocity out of my Kestrel so that my what I'm seeing on the target is actually what I'm seeing on my Kestrel. Or, or normally what I would do is I would make an adjustment on my scope. So if it said... I don't know, 6.3 mils at whatever, and it was actually 6.4. I, you know, I mean, I was hitting lower, hitting high. I would make an adjustment, and then okay, it's actually you know 6.4 mils for 600 or whatever. And I'll, well, that would be a thousand yards, but you know, you know, whatever the number would be, I'd I'd, I'd write it down, and then I and I kind of make some calculations. And one of the basic things we kind of idea is from about zero to 500 ish yards speed tends to be a little bit more important than BC. And then from 500 or 600 to 1,000, BC tends to be a little bit more important than speed. So if I'm out further, if I make a, a smaller adjustment with BC, the uh, it'll move more versus making speed in closer. You know, like you have to make a large adjustment at 400 yards with BC to, to make any effect going up and down versus a smaller adjustment with um, velocity. And then, of course, you may need to add in a little bit of velocity as you come back to make sure that you're still lining up you know you treat it out to a thousand you needed to add a couple tenths now you need to you know so you change the bc a little bit and you um and then you might need to bring that back um add a little bit more velocity in closer and again that velocity is not going to make as big a deal out, out at range as it will in close yeah so you're saying all this is like you, you can have the numbers you can guess but it's just a guess you actually have to go shoot the gun and it's your gun. You have to shoot your rifle because, again, twist rates, you know, you know, everybody talks about, like, I got this barrel, it's got this twist rate. All those things will affect BC. You know, if your bullet's coming out a little bit faster than my bullet, even though we're shooting the same bullet in the same twist rate, your BC, you know, because it's an average calculation because your BC is actually changing as it goes down range, right? You know, the BC at the, uh, I know guys that actually will set up like two or three different profiles in their ballistics calculator, like a zero to, you know, 400 to 400 to 700 and a 700 to whatever, or, you know, I'm just throwing numbers out there, but something like that, you know, as your velocity is decaying, so is your BC. So there's, there's multiple ways to attack that problem, but you have to know what it is. If I tell you the target is 842 yards, I've given you like, like you've talked about some snipers and stuff before. I mean, one of the hard things in a lot of those situations is to get an accurate range where, you know, in PRS, we're fortunate enough for the most part to get an accurate range. There's no sense to, you know, not taking advantage of that. If you're not, if you don't have that perfect elevation dialed in, like you're just so behind the curve, it's, it's going to be painful. Yeah. That's one of the things I think a lot of people, they kind of have this, I'll include myself in here, but like a romanticism about, oh, I'm going to mill the target and estimate the range. And, the, and but the, the margin of error on that is so high. It's so that, high. I, I love getting in arguments online with, hunters are, you know, and usually it's a question of like first focal plane versus second focal plane and why one's better than the other. And they insist that they have to have a first focal plane. Now I'm a big proponent of first focal plane, but I'm also a big proponent of the best glass available. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. You're not going to mill a target on an unknown distance with an unknown, you know, it'd be one thing if I could say, well, this is specifically this height, then you might be able to get close. But when you're talking about humans or animals or any of that stuff, like, okay, is that 36 inches or is he 37? I mean, look, look at the, you know, the height difference between, you know, me and 
my wife and you know my son who's extremely tall you know all that you know none of us are going to mill out the same if we're standing next to each other right like well which one's the 36 inches <laughs> right and then and then that margin of error comes out like if you're out at 800 1200 yards then it's yeah. well, that margin of error is a total miss yeah it's a total miss so to get it's around huge. that you're suggesting everybody should should basically have a laser rangefinder uh, well, in a PRS match, now some guys are advocates of that, depending on um, where you're at. Most of the ranges that I shoot at, we've been pretty fortunate where the ranges have been pretty accurate. And that does tend to be kind of a bone of contention because if you're going to tell me what the range is, then it needs to be accurate. Otherwise, you're going to say it's not an accurate range. And then it becomes not fair. So most of the ranges now, I have shot a couple of matches out west where the ranges have not been quite as accurate. And, and those guys tended to carry more uh, of the laser range finders and have pretty good ones and, and used them. Most of the time, I almost never, I don't think I used one in a match last year at all. So, so actually, I didn't know this. So I always assumed that this was unknown distance. So you're saying that they actually tell you how far it is? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They got away from that in, the, in most of the PRS stuff a long time ago. Because what ends up happening is, you know, unless you're going to segregate people like pre and post shot, which, again, the way a lot of the matches are run, everybody's sitting right next to each other. You know what I mean? It's, it's you can't have stage. You'd be there for three, three or four days if you had to have, you know, miles in between stages and doing stuff. It's kind of that's kind of the way like Mammoth Sniper Challenge is set up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so all the stuff, uh, they'll hand you the range book you know, Friday afternoon and all the ranges are in there for the entire match. Okay. Well, that's really good information to know. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, like I'm shooting a match this weekend, the course of fire is already out. <laughs> they, 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 they posted up online like a week before, you know, as you can look at like kind of what you're going to do and what ranges you'll have to shoot. Okay. All right. So I want to keep going in this conversation now with like, sure. we're getting ready for a newbie. So you said the first yep. two things you need to know your zero and you need to know your data. No way around that. Absolutely. You have to know it. Nope. Okay. So I want to break this to a couple of categories of rifle, caliber, optics, and any extra supporting gear that we want to go. So I want to start with rifle. Um, we kind of already had a little bit of this conversation here, but if I'm a newbie, so that's, you know, I can't afford to go get, you know, a nice custom built precision rifle. Um, where do you think people should really start? And this is probably ties together with caliber too, but, or the cartridge. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this is not a poor man's sport. You know, there there is no uh, $400 Glock, you know, let's go shoot production class, uh, like USPSA entry into this. You're, you can show up with um, a, a lot of different rifles. I'm assuming your question, you, you want to have something that's reasonably competitive. I mean, you know, you, I, I heard of some guy uh, actually was reading about shows up to a match with a Ruger number one, you know, single shot Ruger number one. I mean, you can show up with anything, but, I, but I'm assuming you're talking about somebody that, that wants to not be competitive, like they're going to win, but like not show up with a Ruger number one or a 3030, you know, you know, iron sight rifle. I mean, some, something that's like, we have something that's within like what should be shot. Yeah. So um, they they want to show up and, and have fun. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and actually hit targets, right. You want to, you want to show up and you want to shoot better than, you know, 5% of the targets out there. Uh, you're going to need to get into something at a minimum, like the Ruger RPR or a T like, actually I'm a huge fan of the Tika's. I've got a Tika CTR that I use for a little hunting gun. That gun is a hammer. That's probably one of the better guns to get into. And they're going to all be, I think what's a Ruger RPR? What are they? They're like 12 or 1500 yeah, bucks or something, right? 
around there. So and that, that's, I think, where that, that CTR, the TAC-1, uh, is and I think there's a whole bunch of it, and I'll be honest, with you, I don't I don't know all of them like the Bagheras and the, um, uh, what's the other brand that everybody shoots that has the lock barrel? Um, Savage. I can't. Savage. Savage. You know, so there's there's a bunch of those rifles that will, you know, be reasonable. Like they're you're not gonna you're not gonna be blazing it away. You you are gonna be at that point somewhat limited by the the accuracy of the rifle and the system how it works overall. So you, you're going to be behind the power curve on that. Now, if you can step up a little bit more, there is a pile of manufacturers right now uh, that are making fantastic rifles in about that, like two to 2,500 range. Uh, I knew, I knew masterpiece arms because that was where the production class was, uh, they just bumped it up to $2,500, but it wasn't $2,000 for the rifle. So like Bad Rock Rifles has theirs. Um, I think PVA, which is Patriot Valley Arms, had their Minuteman rifle. I don't know what the status of that is, if they're still making them or what the deal is. Um, MPA had their production class rifle, and those are fantastic values for the money. I mean, that is every bit. I mean, the MPA in particular, I mean, it's a, it's their cost. They, they do it because they do so much in house. They make their barrels. They make, they make their bot central barrels back in the day. It's an interesting story of how we actually got into PRS. Uh, I'll, I'll let you talk to him to, <laughs> to get that whole story. That's another whole conversation, but uh, fantastic story and how they, they got into precision rifles and what they do. And so they're able to offer, and they run on a Curtis action uh, that, they, that Curtis makes for MPA where they're able to kind of, I think I think it's just a, a little bit less milling. It's certainly not any less quality, but it, as you well know, when you get CNC machines, machine time is is price, right? If I can if I can get an extra part in a day, it's just that you know that that machine, you know, the longer it takes you to get a part out of the machine, the more it costs. That's that's the bottom line on CNC machines. So they're able to I think they you know kind of do a little bit less milling or something. So they're able to get these rifles for fantastic value, and and frankly, that rifle's probably every bit as accurate as my, you know, a full custom build um, is the way that goes. So that really, if you can pony up and get there again, this is unfortunately just not a poor man's sport in the rifle uh, that really gets you into, you're not limited anymore. So just kind of pulling on this thread some more. So you mentioned Tika's um, and the Ruger RPR. Um, so in mm-hmm. kind of that price range, like the way, so my personal rifle that I've been kind of building yep. up is it's built around a Hawa action. Okay, um, okay. Bet, bedded in a manor stock. Um, nice. You know, so I'm um, like, is that for like a beginner like that? Okay. That would probably work. Assuming it shoots well. I mean, not every rifle is different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's enough to go have fun. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the actions are going to be there. I'm not as familiar with the how action. What, what barrel uh, are you going with on it? Like well, how is the right, barrel set up? Yeah. Right now it's is just there, a, is it's, a barrel action. Yeah, so I bought it. I bought it as a complete, complete rifle. It's it's just okay. a it's a heavy barrel you. 308, you know, 20 inch. I got you. I got you. I'll eventually yeah, replace yeah. that, but but uh, yeah. So right. it's just kind of a standard. Uh, so the Howa actions are modeled off the old Seiko, so flat bottom, so really nice bedding. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yep, yeah, yeah. Something like that would would absolutely get you in. Now again, like out of the factory where you're going to be limited. So for example, like what you're talking about, in, in, in just to understand the left and right lateral limits, if you will. So you talked about a 20 inch 308. So ideally you would be running something like if you were going to really run a 308 in PRS, you'd want to shoot something around a 28 inch, right? To get the extra velocity that you would need in a 308 caliber. So that's kind of like, unfortunately, that's the same thing with my Tika, 
Um, my Tika CTR is a 20 inch factory barrel and it hammers, but it, but I, but because I'm 200 feet per second slower than I would be with a full length barrel, when I start pushing that thing out past 850, 900 yards, um, it, it, it becomes a little bit of a challenge, right? I mean, I will, I will wear somebody out at 500 yards. You want to, you want to shoot 500 yards. That rifle is unbelievable. You know what I mean? Cause it's, it's right in its wheelhouse um, of where it's going. But when I start stretching it out, that that's where I start having a, a little bit, you know, the dispersion of the bullets start getting a little bit further apart. But it, the reality is, you know, we all like to think that we're going to go out and half of this match is going to be at 1,200 yards. The reality is you could probably miss at most matches everything over 1,000 yards and win the match. Because the reality is there's only a couple of targets that are out that far. Now, granted, you, you know, you're going to hit everything else. But, but I mean, it's not like you have 50% of your targets at 950 and 1,000 yards. Even... Even facilities that have that kind of distance don't have that kind of distance for every stage. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good, good, also a good bit of information there. So um, I, I probably need to pull on the caliber question, the cartridge question anymore. Um, kind of mentioned the 308. It's the old war, war mm -hmm. the old war horse. Um, <laughs> yep. the, way, the way I've always looked at it is, you know, if you if like if you're like me and that's what you bought shoot it until it burns out. You'll, you'll learn more by doing that than rushing out to buy the latest, greatest in the caliber wars. Um, but then, then what? So like what trade-offs do you think are out there from like the next step? The next step is you've got really one of two choices. The first decision you need to make is, are you going to reload? Uh, or are you, you know, crazy rich? If you're crazy rich, you can get somebody else to reload. There's plenty of companies out there like Copper Creek that load, uh, hand load quality ammunition, uh, clay's cartridge is another one, uh, in all of the kind of what I would call oddball calibers, right? Like anything you want, six, five, 47, six, three more. I mean, all the normal stuff too, you know, Dasher, XC, any, anything out there that you want, they're loading ammunition for, but those start coming in at a price point that, you know, is going to be a challenge. Well, I shouldn't say a challenge for a new shooter. New shooter is not there. It depends on what your economic status is. If you're a, you know, rich doctor and, and your time is better valued spent you know taking and picking up an extra shift in the er <laughs> maybe maybe ordering ammunition's the way to go i got a friend that's like that you know i mean he, he's a doctor and it isn't worth his time to reload i mean it frankly is it you know the hours he spends reloading he could make more money than it would cost him to buy ammunition so he buys ammunition which makes truly smart you know financial sense but for the rest of us who don't make that kind of kind of money um you need to then decide are you going to reload or are you not if you're not going to reload then you need to stick with something that really good factory match grade ammunition is available for and frankly those are two cartridges in my mind that's either six five creedmoor and probably more realistically six creedmoor um there's really not much else out there in factory ammunition that you can get on any of the major websites and order you know a case of ammunition that's not you know five dollars around or four dollars around like i said some of the more specialty places so that's the, really the first question you need to ask yourself it's not like which one of these is better or worse than the others uh, all of those cartridges and let's face it prs and most of those ones are pretty much gone to the six millimeter they you know it, it has to mainly do with recoil management and that's not recoil like how oh, my shoulder hurts recoil it's recoil in shooting off of these crazy rickety barricades and seeing where that bullet went whether it's an impact or it's a miss 
um, an impact and where it went on the plate versus where I'm aiming is just as important to know, you know, if I seeing a miss um, to be able to adjust for your next shot, whether you made a, a proper wind call or not, or seeing if the wind picking up or, you know, as you're continuing on with the stage. So, so first and foremost, you need to ask yourself, are you going to reload or not? If you're not, you, you now have limited yourself to a couple of cartridges in my mind. Um, and on those, I would probably go with the six Creed more again, just, just because that's, um, the six millimeters just kind of where it's at, uh, in PRS. If you are going to reload now, kind of the sky's the limit and really it's dealer's choice. Uh, there's a pile of great cartridges out there. And frankly, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be involved with one of the companies that has pioneered two of the probably best six millimeter cartridges that everybody's been waiting for, uh, having brass now, one of the, one of the downsides to shooting the dasher has always been fire forming. And it's been a, it's a more tricky fire form than a standard, you know, improved cartridge with the 40 degree shoulder. It's just kind of this, a lot of that metal is really going forward. So, so guys kind of really shied away from it. Well, now you don't have to. Now there's, there's, you know, factory brass available for the Dasher. Uh, there's factory GT brass from both Alpha and uh, Hornaday. Uh, this GT, there's, uh, excuse me, there's a six XC, the six Creedmoor. Uh, if you really like neck and stuff down, there's six by 47. There's just, a, there's so many cartridges out there. And then you get to decide just kind of what you want. Um, that's kind of like buying cars, you know, you like red or you like blue. Some of us deal with I think, I think like you said, some people really put a lot more, most of those cartridges in the hands of somebody who knows how to shoot, or more importantly, in the gunsmith that knows how to build a rifle. There's going to be plenty of arc. Every single one of those cartridges is currently being shot and people are winning with, including six Creedmoor. I mean, we had a discussion on that on one of the boards the other day, like, oh, nobody's shooting six Creedmoor. I'm like, oh, I ever hear a guy named, you know, Dave Preston or Steve MC. I mean, he just won uh, the North Carolina match. It was just one uh, last weekend with a uh, six Creedmoor. So. And then just out of kind of curiosity in this one, because um, you said everybody's going to six millimeter class because of recoil reasons. Um, but there is a division of PRS, right? That that still is only three hundred eight or two two three, right? The tactical division. I That's think? correct. There's yep. There is still tactical division uh, in PRS. Exactly. Uh, I wish I could spout out all of the rules. Uh, I believe they kind of changed it a little bit from the way it was several years ago. Now there's a, a bullet weight limitation and speed limitation that's different from the standard of 3,200 feet per second for everybody else in open division. Okay. I think it's somewhere around 28 or 2,900 feet per second. It's, it's basically because guys were ended up like really hot rotten, you know, 155 grain bullets going smoking fast. And, and the kind of idea of tack was to allow uh, police and military to be able to use kind of duty ammunition, duty rifles, mm-hmm. kind of like what you're, what you're bringing along a 20 inch type barrel and you're a little bit behind. But if I put you up against, you know, somebody shooting a 155 at 3150 and you're shooting, you know, 75 grain factory duty ammo at 2550, you're at a huge disadvantage mm-hmm. in, in that. That's not what the, the idea of that class was. So they did bring it down Okay, um, to kind of bring it back in. So I think you can only shoot 77 or some green bullets in, in, uh, two, two, three and like one seventy eights in, uh, in, in below in, uh, three Oh eight. Okay, cool. All right. So I'll move on to optics then. Uh, you, you kind of mentioned sure. this a couple of times here. So, uh, I know the general advice when you look around forums, is that really the glass should caught should be more expensive than the rifle it's sitting on. Um, and earlier in the conversation, you mentioned you advocate the best glass you can buy. So right off the bat, I'm going to ask the question, um, 
if I have limited number, limited amount of money to spend, where should I put that? Uh, like specific brands? Or are you talking about like optics or no, rifle? Yeah, or no, so it would be, what is, should, I put, should I put that money more towards like good, good glass or towards, towards the rifle itself? Uh, unfortunately, you can't have one without yeah. the other. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, like, okay, so I, I you know, you, you buy the most expensive scope out there, you get a tangent theater and put it on a Walmart 700 rifle. <laughs> this is kind of irrelevant, right? Uh, you know, you know, there's, there's no real compromise. That's, that's kind of why the old adage of spend as much on your rifle as you do in your gun, or your <laughs> rifle and scope, uh, comes into play. So you, you can't, if you got $5,000 to spend, you can't spend five. You know, forty five hundred on a on a on a scope and five hundred dollars in glass. <laughs> you, you couldn't do the reverse, yeah. right? You got to kind of do twenty five hundred in each. Gives okay. you kind of the best bang for the buck. Okay, and and that's pro- probably fairly true. I mean, you got to kind of look at your budget and again. And it, it, I, you know, I hate to say, you guys out there, it's just not a cheap sport. Yeah. And and that stuff matters. Uh, glass matters. I mean, I've, I've stepped up into some, you know, I've been fortunate enough to step up, up into some pretty nice glass and the ability to see, now it's not worth a lot. You know, the difference between any of these top tier scopes, um, anything from, you know, the Vortexes, uh, you know, Bushnell, um, Night Force to, you know, Schmidt and Bender and, and Tangent Theater is maybe worth one you know, like it, whatever anybody would consider the lowest end on that scale to the highest end on that scale is probably worth maybe one to two points in an entire match. Mm-hmm. But when you start doing that and then you're like, okay, well, how do you weigh your powder and how good is your ammunition? Is that worth a point? Is, you know, the way you rifle and how it's done, is that worth a point? That's how you pick up a point here, a point there, a point here and there. And, and when these matches are settled between the top 10 places, you know, covered by seven points, you know, that one or two points matter. Mm-hmm. So I think a, a better way to look at this is that there is, there is definitely a point of diminishing returns on just about everything. But in terms of optics, then um, there's a tipping point where, hey, this is pretty, this is good enough that you should be focusing your efforts elsewhere. So does that sound fair? Yeah, that's that's probably pretty accurate in there. Uh, and in that case, you know, of course, you need to, the minimums you need to have is something that you can dial, something that's got some sort of reticle in it that has the ability to, you know, measure, so you can hold over. In other words, not just a, you know, crosshair reticle. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to have a tree in it or not. I, I don't, some of mine have trees and some of them don't. Um, but it also has to be mechanically sound. So that's one of the big things too, is, you know, when you dial it to six mils and then you dial it back to zero and you dial it back to six mils, does, does the bullet impact the same place each time you do that? Repeatability is huge. So there's a couple of things you mentioned that I want to, I want to spend a little more time on. And um, so number one, earlier you mentioned first focal plane, second focal plane. I feel like everybody is, hands down, we'll say first focal plane. I've been saying it for years too. Um, yep. But if you're not milling targets. Game, yes. So in this game, in this, this definitely. Yes. Okay. Why is that? Well, so when you're talking about milling targets, and that's where people mess this up. Milling targets, why would you ever mill a target not at max magnification? So I'm going to mill a target. We were talking about the inaccuracies before. Why would I ever mill a target at 1,000 yards-ish it's 16 power when I have a 25 power scope. 
I mean, is that, that just doesn't make any sense. And if it's at, if it's at a point where I don't need to do that, it's at 200 or 300 yards. I don't need to mill it. I can just pull the trigger because the, you know, the drop on it's a little. So if you're in a position where you need to mill the target, like in a hunting situation or some of these other ones, you're, there's no reason to ever do that at anything less than maximum power. Because you need to be able to see the definition between the two, right? You know, is it is it 0.2 mils? Is it, I mean, uh, is it like 0.25 mils or 0.22 mils or, you know what I mean? Where exactly is that? And as that, in a first focal plane or anything in the middle, like it's just smaller and smaller. So there's no reason to do that. In our game now, so, so that that's a side because we don't really do that. Now in PRS, the first focal plane comes in because most of the time we're not shooting at max magnification. Uh, like for me personally, I shoot somewhere around the 16 to 17 power for the entire match, um, from 400 yard targets, frankly, out to, you know, 1,000, 1,200 yard targets. Sometimes I might bump the power up a little bit if I'm going out that far, but that gives me enough field of, excuse me, enough field of view that I can see everything that I need to see going around the target, like little things I want to pick up, you know, okay, to the wind, you know, mirage and the stuff underneath the target, but it also gives me enough definition in the, in the reticle itself to be able to make proper wind holes, you know, so am I holding two or three tenths or, you know, one and a half, 1.2 mils, like a mine reticle, it has a, a, a mill mark at every 0.2 reticles, so there's a tick. And I prefer that over the half mil, mil, half mil, mil um, marks. It's just a little bit, a little bit better when you start shooting targets that are, we shoot a lot of targets that are 0.3.4 mils wide uh you know, you know having a mill mark to be able to hold a, a 0.2 or 0.3 is is important rather than yeah uh, okay where where where's 0.3 if if i got a half a mill mark it's kind of here you know it's not not as as accurate as it needs to be um okay i'm gonna sidetrack off of the first focal plane piece of that so it kind of gives me a follow-up question on that one and is uh you said you you re- you pretty much shoot around 16 17 power most of the time um, so is that kind mm-hmm. of like the ideal range most people are going to use? Like, where's the point of like, you're just buying silly power now and now like why there's so many 30, 35 power scopes in the market. If most of, most of what I've heard is people shooting 14 to 18. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's mainly because of that. And then also, so now where I do shoot that is at a hundred yards, you know what I mean? Like when you're zeroing your scope, you know, like the, the tighter you can get, the more accurate, like, okay, am I, am I shooting the left side of that dot, the right side of that dot? It's kind of like how accurate can you be with a four MOA dot versus a two MOA dot, right? I mean, so, so the, the, the more magnification you can get, you can actually shoot it. Plus they're cross-tracking. I mean, I mean, guys who shoot, I, I think a lot of the guys who shoot like F-class and Metris, I don't know a lot about that particular discipline, but they're shooting higher power stuff. So maybe, you know, you have cross discipline scopes and that, and then it's just magnification, right? Range guys like, you know, the vortex four and a half to, was that 30 or 28 or whatever that is, you know, they're just doing a, the eight X erector or seven X erector or six X erector or whatever that's going to be. And that's kind of where they set the bottom where they set the top, um, on it. I, I think they're all kind of about the same. Everybody's shooting that. Now, as far as what people shoot that actually shoot in the match, that kind of varies a lot. I think a lot of the the higher top shooters tend to shoot kind of more where I'm shooting in that 16, 18 power range. I think a lot of the the newer shooters tend to shoot in that like 12 to 15 power range. Um, and that'll maybe piggyback on something else that we were talking about earlier. Like, what do you need to be able to do in your first match? You need to be able to pull up the scope and find targets. Um, 
you know, I see that a lot of times guys, you know, looking down range and, you know, you see the, the white spot of the target you're supposed to do. And they put the, the gun up and the guns pointed 30 degrees to the left. Like, Hey man, you're not even, you're not even close. <laughs> you know, you get that thing going down range and, and that, and that happens to do with, you know, so guys want to back that magnification out so that the field of view is bigger. Oh, there's a target. And then they zoom back in. And as you get better and better, you know, the guys are able to just throw the rifle up on the barricade and then they look in the scope and even at, high magnification now they're still looking at the target so now they're faster rather than to reach up go back and forth and they have that ability with the first focal plane scope with the with the the details a little bit better between you know like a 0.2 and a 0.3 hold or whatever it might be okay now you mentioned christmas tree or tree reticles earlier um Mm -hmm. so I, i i've been you know reviewing some different options in the in the optics classes and i've kind of it's interesting because I had never actually mounted a tree reticle before, but I've had plenty mm-hmm. of like mill hash ones. And I thought I would like the tree a lot more than I did. I, <laughs> I feel like it got a lot busier. And then as I was thinking yeah. about something else you said, is that really most of the time I feel like if I'm doing like elevation, I'm probably going to crank on the turret, you know, unless, unless I know there are stages yeah. where, Hey, you can't dial. So holdover is the way to go. Um, kind of what's well, your perspective and, and, on that? And, well, so there's two things there's, there's really, I, I mean, I know guys, the guy Matt Trevay, he does, he runs a tremor two or tremor three reticle and he doesn't dial anything at all. Like he holds over every single thing and uses the wind dots in there. But I think that he is definitely the, um, I don't say odd man out. He's a nice guy, but I mean, like, you know, that's, that's kind of the lower side of it. There's not many people doing that. Uh, my perspective is I, I initially, when I started getting in this game, I did what everybody else. I read this and read that. And especially being a, a three gunner, uh, and shooting kind of like BDC reticles and that kind of stuff. And like a one to six power razor that I had, I, I thought like, well, I want a tree, you know, I'm going to be up here. I'm going to be, you know, cause I'm thinking I'm going to hold over. Right. You know, if I, I go fast, you know, cause I, cause I'm thinking speed. I'm always thinking speed coming from USPSA and three gun, like, man, I gotta get this thing done. Right. You know, is gonna get this done fast. I'm going to be holding over. And it's really not the case. So one of the things as I started getting a little bit better that, that again, one of the things you start picking up is trying to pick up, say, some of the mirage and some of the grass and those things moving in between shots. Like, okay, is the grass still leaning over the same way it was? Uh, you know, is it not? And what I found for me personally was that the trees that I was running now, now I say all this, but my current scope is a tree reticle, so, <laughs> but it's kind of the only reticle they offered in the scope. It's a great scope, but, uh, I had moved away from that because I found that the scopes I was running, that tree really blocked a lot of the lower part. And I found myself getting on the reticle and then kind of having to depress the muzzle a little bit to get the target in the upper field of the reticle or the upper field of the scope above the reticle to kind of see all of that stuff with, uh, mirage and grass and wind and all that stuff, which obviously a lot of that stuff tends to be below the target, right? Not above the target. So I had gone away. And the other part of it is you're only going to need, like you mentioned a couple of things there about like, well, I'm mostly going to dial unless I have to, you know, the stage dictates that I cannot dial, that I have to hold. And that's true. But even without a tree reticle, it depends on what kind of wind you have that you need to hold. Because if the wind isn't that significant, then you're not really going to be off that center line, right? So if I've got to hold, so you're going to dial your first target, let's say. So you dialed up whatever it is, three mils. And now you're going to hold one mil because your next target's four mils. Let's just use random numbers. So you're at you're at the, the main crosshair for the first target. So now you've got wind 
along left and right because you're on the main crosshair, right? You engage that target. Well, if you're only holding, you know, left edge or just off left edge, you really don't, you're really not measuring, right? Because so we normally talk about win in a couple of, a couple three ways. Usually you're going to say something like, hey, I'm holding straight up or, you know, favoring left or favoring right or left edge or right edge or like just off the edge. So all of that is going to be relative to that vertical line in the middle of the scope, right? Otherwise, when you start picking up wind a little bit more, now you're going to start talking about, well, I'm holding, you know, 1.2, and, th- and that's usually to center, like not to an edge. So if I if I told you, hey, the wind was, uh, you know, 1.3 mils, you know, you should instinctively know that I mean that 1.3 mil mark is to the center of the target, not to the left edge or the right edge, but to the center. So it, again, if if you're in a in a wind situation where it's not that significant, even at two or three mils of elevation. I'm pro- I have enough kind of just looking at the target that I'm shooting at that I'm like, ah, just a little left to center, left edge, just off the left edge. There's a fair amount of wind rage in there up to probably, you know, a half mil or better. So let's just start talking about, you know, 12, 1300 yard shots, which you're probably not going to have to hold over on because that's not the way they run the stage. And more than five, six, seven, eight mile an hour wind, you're really not going to be that far off of the center that you need a tree. Does that make sense to what yeah, I'm saying absolutely. there? Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. it's it's almost exaggerated how much you actually yeah. have to move left and right. Right. And it, so the only time, I've had it happen one time, and I was doing as a match, I told you Matt runs uh, that setup, where he set up a stage, because he was a match director for his great match, War Rifles match uh, last year, where he set up like a target that was at like 300 and a target that was at 800. So there was a significant, and you had to shoot one and then the other and then move one and then the other and move one and the other. And he set up like, I think it was 10, five or six positions. So it was like 10 or 12 shots. So it was a lot of movement in, in out and back. And we happened to be up in a day that was running like 10 miles an hour wind. So that was the only, I think one of the few times in several years of shooting that I had to kind of like shoot one. And then I was what did I call like a never, never land. Cause I was running a scope without a tree where I'm just kind of, like oh i think it's right about here <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, like i think that's enough wind you know kind of looking through it so it's, it's, it's kind of rare in my in my opinion that that happens that i really am looking at you know that that reticle where I'm, I'm counting all right this is over here because just just the way i shoot i end up dialing enough where it doesn't really matter last piece in here supporting gear so in this conversation you have mentioned a kestrel you have mentioned yep. uh, a bag um, is there anything else you think someone should know before they show it to a match or they should buy? Mm, I mean, obviously a bipod. I mean, that, it's like bipod rear bag, which is the bag. You, you got to show up with that, right? That's, that's minimum. I mean, just a sight in your rifle. <laughs> you know, you gotta have a rear bag, you have a bipod. That's, that's kind of the minimum thing. If you showed up to a match with uh, a bipod, a rear bag, uh, hopefully it's a, a, a a rear bag, like a, like a game changer style rear bag, the old school, like little tiny sand socks is not going to quite get it done for the rest of the match. And your ammo, you in a, in a phone app that was trued, you could do pretty well. You know, you put all that stuff in a backpack and you walk around with your lunch and your water bottle, you know, you got 85, 90% of what you need. Um, as you progress through the things that they're starting to do, the the field is just getting so, so good. I mean, if you look at any of the standings, the, the, the point spreads between any of the places is so tight. I mean, you start looking at like 
40th to 80th place in the nation is spread by like four points, five points. You know what I mean? It's over an entire year. You've hit five or six targets. There's a difference between 20, 30 slots. It's a huge, it's that, that competitive, you know, tens of points, you know, they're going down, a, I think like three decimal places or something crazy to, uh, to get your point. I mean, it's that, it's that competitive. So when you start getting at that level, now having the ability, you know, they're testing different skill sets at each thing. Like, can you, can you run a lot of positions very quickly? Like there'll be stuff at the finales and some of the harder matches where you're, you're going to run like 10 or 12 different positions, one shot at each position, move, you know, one shot, move, one shot, move. So it's like, can you get set up that fast? You know what I mean? So that's a skill set. It's, it's the wind reading, you know, let's do the, what we, a lot of guys could the troop line, like you lay it up on the tower and you're going to shoot, you know, 800, 900, all the way out to 1200. What are we going to do? So you're like, how well did you win the, read the wind? You see, you misses, see what's going on and go out there. There's some of the speed stuff. And then there's some of the other things like shooting off of a tripod for tripod rear support. And there's, you know, low ports and high ports and different things like that. So there's all these little, most of the time, I know uh, when I first started shooting some of this stuff, uh, I was lucky enough to be friends uh, and still friends with uh, Matt Rousseau is, um, you know, one of the best shooters has been out there. He's won like three years in a row. He won the series. And so, you know, I, I was actually fortunate enough to have known him prior and, uh, and shot like with as his amateur in the gap grind. Um, when we did that, and one of the things he kind of said to me when we first did it, it was like, dude, a barricade is a barricade is a barricade. It's either like low, medium or high. And, and for 98% of the, uh, the situations that's true. Now they're starting to get into a couple other little things where it's like, hey, they're trying to test do you have this skill set, do you have that skill set? And, and if you're gonna start playing at that level, then you're gonna start needing to be good with a tripod, you know, as rear support. And you're gonna start needing to be good with a, a thin bag. You're gonna need to start being good with this and that and speed and everything else. But for the again, again, for the guy showing up that, you know, is, is just hoping to hit a bunch of targets out there and do really well and you know doesn't have the time and experience to invest in all that stuff just yet. Yeah. Bipod, rear bag, ammo that works and, uh, you know, a phone app and, and you're probably going to do pretty well. And frankly, like I'll be there, you know, you can use my tripod, <laughs> you, you know, that's just <laughs> yeah. kind of, kind of the way it is. I'll show you how to try to use it now. That, that is the old saying, especially in there is like, there's no good ideas at a match. You know, there's no like, Hey man, I, I've never done this before. I think this is a fantastic idea on how to shoot this. Like, <laughs> no, dude, that is, that is not a good idea at all. That's a, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> so, um, but as a, but as a new shooter, that is a good idea. You know what I mean? Like people, people do think about that. And, and, and I do, I do encourage a new shooter to show up to a, like a one day match, you know, and, and, they, and they need to use that to learn, you know, everybody wants to be competitive and we all are, you know, we didn't, you didn't show up to the match to not be competitive, right? Like that's why you signed up and did it. At some point you're competitive with somebody, even if it's just your group of friends or with yourself, you want to do better. And so sometimes that does limit people because they're like, man, I've never shot like that before. You haven't done that. And I'm like, man, but you know, do you, is this a facility like you train in a facility like this all the time? Like, no, I'm like, well, this is your opportunity to give it a try. Like watch how, you know, this guy right here, he's winning the match. Watch how he's shooting. Yeah, but I don't know how to shoot like that. Well, this is your opportunity to give that a try. Right. So don't be afraid to try. Don't be afraid to ask those guys like, Hey, how did you do that? And go up and, and fail miserably at it. I mean, I did. But <laughs> 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 I first, when I first did, I remember shooting with, uh, a good friend of mine, his name is Kevin Shepard, fantastic shooter. And Kevin has the ability to go up with like 15 different bags and build a position that's super stable with all these bags and do it like 
unbelievably fast. And, and since again, it was a guy that I was hanging out with, I was like, well, that's how you shoot this stuff. And I was, and I, I, <laughs> I can't do that at all. <laughs> I was horrible at it. Like I go through like all these bags, like, I'm going to build this position. Like, no, no, you're not going to build that position. <laughs> you're not at all. So, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes you try something and you realize that's not, that's not the way I could shoot, you know? And then like I said, then I start shooting with Matt and Matt shoots like me, he shoots, you know, one bag. All right, here we go. Let's go with this. And, and that's, and that's, that's how I shoot better. Okay. Um, but, but everybody's got their own little techniques. So don't be afraid to try those techniques and, uh, and, and, and realize that some of them you're going to fail miserably. And some of them you're going to be like, Oh my God, that was awesome. And the light will, you know, click. Okay. So, uh, one more question on this one. Um, sure. Is it practical to like bring like a spotting scope or binoculars to something like this? Absolutely. Mandatory. Well, not mandatory, but yes, that, that is something. And you will notice, I remember, I forget where I read it, but it was, it was somebody was mentioning, it was like a newer shooter showing up and it was like, man, I never realized how much time, you know, the top shooters spend looking through binoculars, looking through most guys use binoculars. Spotting scopes are very challenging on your eyes to kind of look through that one one thing. I you know I recommend a nice uh, twelve or fifteen power binocular. You can be able to see everything you need to, and just sit there and look and look and look um, through there. Okay, good to know. All right, um, one more question for me. Actually, two questions, and I'm done. I know we're running out of time here. So um, yeah, going back to earlier in the conversation, um, do you have any suggestions for people who don't have a long range to practice at? Like maybe they've got a hundred yards. 25 yards yeah I, you know you there are target sets out there like little dots and little things like that you can work on speed and barricades and whatnot uh it does become a challenge you know there's only so much you can do at two to three hundred yards now that being said um i know the guys like at the amu like they regularly practice at like two and three hundred yards like it's very challenging for them at benning to get out on you know thousand twelve hundred yard ranges you'd think with the amu they have all that stuff but they they really don't so it's, it's not impossible to do it but it does become a challenge because the a lot of this stuff like we talked about earlier the, the rifles are v extremely accurate right i mean there's and that's what i was saying too is that these stages most of the time would not be that much of a challenge given a lot of time where you can sit and really see what the wind's doing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's only so much wind practice you're going to get uh, shooting and how the bullet drops and what's going on and what the little, the little movements that you're going to have in your rifle, how much of an angular difference that really makes down range, right? It's only going to move the bullet so far at hundred or 200 yards. Okay. Um, but it, you know, how much it moves at range, but that being said, the things you can do, I mean, frankly, in your backyard, if you have, have the ability, you know, you can put a little piece of steel or a little whatever, build a little barricade that getting onto the barricade and getting done quickly and, and getting on there is very important. I know like quick story, like one of my first couple of matches, you know, I, I got up there and, and like a lot of guys, just not getting through the stage, right? Like not able to build the position quickly and not be stable in my position. So, of course, I get home and I go out to Lowe's and I buy a bunch of two by fours and I make this little barricade in my backyard. And I, and I get on there and I figure out the position that I need to be. And I'm rock steady. I'm like, I'm going to go to this next match and I'm going to crush some souls. Like, here it comes, right? And and I get out there and <laughs> the same thing happens. You know, I get up on these stages and I can't get the rifle on target. And eventually I get steady on the target, but then I got to move, right? And what I had practiced was I had put my rifle up on that position and then I sat there and I, rack that bolt 
you know, a hundred times and I was so steady, you know, but, but the trick of that was, is I had, you know, maybe I wasn't as steady on that first shot, but certainly by that number 20 through 40 of my dry fires, I was super, super steady because I figured out that position, but I hadn't figured out at that point how to get into that position very quickly. So then after that match, what I started doing in my training sessions was I would, I would only go up and I would never, unless I was really just Ricky, you're trying to, you know, like, is this a little better than that? But I always would only shoot one or two shots from any one position. Then I would move because the thing is, what's going to happen is you're not going to shoot a lot in any one position. You're going to shoot a lot of positions, only a couple of shots. We have to move in, in that type of a um, stage. So that is one thing you can practice at a range, you know, as close as 20 yards in your backyard is getting into that position. How does that rifle need to set? How do I need to hold the bag? How do I need to move that bag from this position to this next position, get behind the rifle and be steady quickly. And that's what those guys are doing who are at the top are doing very fast. And that can be done literally in your living room. Okay. Thank you. All right. So one last question, Mike. Sure. And it's one I asked to everybody. What is something that you wish people would stop doing immediately? Uh, and I'm guilty of it too. Uh, after a match, you know, the, Oh, if I'd only hit, two more shots I would have won. And we're all guilty of doing that. So that's as much as that I need to stop it. Cause guess what? Everybody's thinking the same thing. If, if, if everybody had only hit two of this shot, or if I hadn't tanked that one stage, we all would have won. <laughs> so it's kind of like one of those, like, like you're the only one that had a bad stage, you know, that feeling. And, and I got to stop blaming, you know, Oh, if I'd only done this, I would have been better. Like, no, like that's what everybody, that's why everybody where you're shooting or whatever is at that position. Cause they shot that stuff. So, you know, take accountability for what you've done and where you finished. Uh, you know, not that you just tank that one stage. We all tank the one stage and go off. Oh, I hadn't done that. You know, I would have, I would have been here and, and on that. So I'm, I've been really trying myself. I'm, I'm, as guilty or more guilty than anybody of you know driving home and oh, if I hadn't have done that, I really, I really shoot better than I did. No, you didn't. You didn't shoot better than you did. You shot right where you did because the same guy that finished next to you, he did the same thing. And the guys who didn't did it and the guys who did worse are below you. That's, that's how it happened. <laughs> All right, Mike, this has been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, if anybody wants to, yeah, to get a hold of you, um, is there social media platforms or some way like you want to put your name out there if, if someone wants to follow you? Yeah, uh, the Alpha Missions PRS Shooting Team uh, on Facebook. Uh, there's a little uh, page we have there. Uh, you can kind of, I don't want to say follow us there, but uh, yeah, follow us there, like that page, and, and I usually give updates on what's going on with the matches and whatnot. Uh, certainly, if you tag into any of that stuff, uh, certainly if you have any brass questions, uh, ammunition questions, you know, we're here to answer any of those questions for you guys. So, anything you do to help out, and like I said, just shooting in a match, we'll be around. All right, Mike. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Take care. All right. Let's talk about some key takeaways from this interview with Mike Keenan. What did you think? I learned a lot out of this one. Um, I hope you did too. Be sure to come by the website, everydaymarksman.co and drop a comment on this episode and let Mike and myself know what you took away. Now for me, I think there was three really big pieces of information here I want to walk away from. Number one is that you really should not be concerned 
with not having the right gear. Now, Mike pointed out early on in the episode that if you show up with a rifle that is correctly zeroed and you know your zero and you know your data, you know your ballistic data, you know how to find your drops, people will help you with the rest. If you don't have the right bag, you don't have a spotting scope, you don't have binoculars, you don't have the bipod, people will go out of their way to help you out if you just show that you're interested and you want to put in that little bit of extra effort. So there's a huge element of sportsmanship there. And Mike pointed out that PRS has some of the best sportsmanship he's ever come across within any of the shooting sports that he's competed in. And he's competed in a lot of them. So I think that was a really, really big one. And I want to make sure people know that it's more important for you just to get out there and go do it than to worry about having the perfect thing to start off with. Now, with that, he did say that this is not a poor man's sport. So it's not that you need to go have a $6,000 rifle, but you need to have something that's going to enable you to have fun. So showing up with a four to $500 Walmart special and the cheapest glass you can fit on it, probably not going to work out for you uh, because it's not going to track well. It's not going to have a very accurate measurements in the reticle, and it's just going to hold you back more. And you may walk away more frustrated than happy. All right, now let's talk about some hardware takeaways I got out of this. I think Mike had a really good discussion about picking the right cartridge. Now, me, I'm a 308 nerd. I'm fully planning on walking into this, shooting a 308 for a good long time. But that said, if you are starting from scratch, I thought Mike's advice about picking was really good advice. Now, here, here let's let's play it back. For so, so first and foremost, you need to ask yourself: Are you going to reload or not? If you're not, you, you now have limited yourself to a couple of cartridges in my mind. Um, and on those, I would probably go with the six Creed more again, just just because that's um, the six millimeters, just kind of where it's at uh, in PRS. So there you have it. If you are planning on using factory loaded ammo, which I will probably do for quite a long time then pick something that's a 6.5 Creedmoor or 6 mil Creedmoor because there's already really good match-loaded ammo out there for that cartridge. If you're planning on going with reloading your own ammo, as a lot of the pros do, then you should do what suits your fancy. <laughs> All right. Now, with the cartridge discussion, I think there was another element there which had to do with velocity versus the BC or ballistic coefficient. Let's listen to that one. One of the basic things we kind of idea is from about zero to 500-ish yards, speed tends to be a little bit more important than BC. And then from 500 or 600 to 1,000, BC tends to be a little bit more important. than. So from zero to 500 yards, we're really much more concerned about how that bullet is retaining velocity. That's our flatter trajectory. But from 500 yards and beyond, now we're getting more concerned with that ballistic coefficient. I'm not saying you have to pick one or the other because really we're looking at compromises all around. So it comes down to knowing your dope from both ends, both how it's going to do from speed as well as the BC and having the right drops for you. I would argue it's probably more important to just really know your ballistic data. And Mike gave the example of people who actually have zones of ballistic data because as the bullet slows down, the BC will decrease and it gets less efficient. So they have different zones from zero to 600 yards is zone one from 600 plus it's zone two, and they have slightly different true ballistic data. So interesting way to handle it. Now, something else that came up in this interview, I thought was a good takeaway was just some of the ancillary gear. And the number one thing he recommended was a good bag. He was a big advocate of the Armageddon gear Game Changer, which I know from reading Precision Rifle blogs that that is the most popular bag in this series, as well as the Wee Bad 
fortune cookie. I'll leave links to those both in the show notes, as well as one I'm interested in, which is uh, I'll reveal in the future because I want to give it a test run myself. Okay, I think that's probably good for the major takeaways. I hope you enjoyed this interview and make sure you come by the website. Now, here is one key call to action I have for you guys. The Everyday Marksman is fully funded by our listeners and our readers. So, which means we don't accept sponsorships or anything like that. We don't take money to sell you ads. What I do rely on is either you guys clicking on links I provide for affiliate sales or you directly contribute to the site. So I am asking if you really enjoy what you're getting from the Everyday Marksman, go to everydaymarksman.co forward slash support. And for the cost of a box of ammo, you can help me keep producing more interviews, more articles, more reviews, and all the great stuff that you guys are interested in knowing more about. All right, that is it for me today, guys. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. I will catch you next time. This is Matt signing out.